0: To Philippians four, so we will spend our time together this morning. Philippians chapter number four. I do want to rejoice in the news we heard Friday uh, that fifty years of uh, protecting and uh, giving um, plenty of room for the abortion industry, Supreme Court overturned Roe v.ersus Wade, and so we want to praise God for His providence, His hand of providence in that decision, that act, especially in such a chaotic. Uh, and um, dark time we are living in in our nation. So we just praise God for that. We well, you have your Bibles in front of you. I want to re- read. I'm thankful for Leard and uh, and the other men who reads. always an encouraging time in our service on Sunday morning as they lead us in scripture reading and prayer. And that scripture reading part is the most infallible part of our service together because we want to hear God's word uh, and him speaking to us. But I want to reread verses 4 through 9 this morning as that will be the center of our focus together. The Bible says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And... The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is commendable, if there be any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Father, that is your holy inspired word. We thank you for it. Speak to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Many of you read the biography, especially here, uh, of George Mueller, and you recall all the things that uh, God accomplished through his ministry. Just a brief look at the weight of what he was facing in 1874, uh, he writes that he had under his care... 2,100 persons not only daily at the table but with everything else to be provided for 189 missionaries to be assisted and 100 schools with 9,000 scholars in them to be entirely supported about 4 million tracts and tens of thousands of copies of Holy Scripture yearly now to be sent out of which he says I have no resources for but he goes on and writes he speaking of God I commit the whole work to him and he will provide me with what I need in the future also that I know not whence the means are to come though I know not whence the means are to come in that uh, excerpt he writes I gladly pass through these trials of faith with regard to means if he only might be glorified in his church in the world benefited. Uh, We read of George Mueller like that, it reminds us of the word of God in the book of Daniel which says, they that know their God shall stand firm and take action. Uh, It is his knowledge of God, his understanding of God which gives him that unshakable face to minister uh, in the way in which he ministered. And it wasn't just true of George Mueller, it's true about all of God's servants. Apostle Paul, Peter, James, John, all of them, it was their knowledge of God, their understanding of who God is that enabled them to accomplish what they accomplished in this life. The same thing is true about us. Our, Our understanding of God, our knowledge of Him, our faith in Him affects every area of our life. Do you agree with that? Every area of our life. Your faith is evident in many ways. It is seen through many things uh, that goes on in our life, many ways in which we respond to life, but none is more evident, I don't think, than what we find here in verses 4 through 7. As Paul commands the church how to live out their faith and characteristics of what their faith should look like, it is quite odd for us to begin like this. I almost think it would be easier if Paul said, all right, you, you want to know Christ, you pursue Christ and all this. Now now go check your neighbor, neighbor's mail and, and maybe you know, pay for someone's mail through the drive-thru and don't um, tip well and you know, all that stuff that you do, and then you're good. That's how you live out the Christian faith. Instead, I think Paul does something more complicated, more difficult, and that is he, he deals with the disposition of our hearts. Where you are, the in you, the, the inside of you that runs the control panels and, and carries out all the activities of your day in and day out. In, in other ways, he is meddling with us as he speaks about your disposition towards God, your disposition towards your neighbor, and your disposition towards trials in which you face. That's what you see played out through these verses here. Notice verse 14 with me as he speaks about the Christian and praise. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, probably one of the most well-known verses in the book of Philippians. Uh, it, it captures really the whole theme of Paul's, uh, Paul's heart for the Christians there in Philippi. It captures his own ministry, the essence of his own ministry, and the tone of the letter, and that is rejoicing in joy. And So he tells the church naturally, he commands the church to rejoice in the Lord. Now, do you find that an odd command? I'm commanding you to rejoice. I'm commanding you to praise God. Be happy in God is what he's saying to the church here. I'm sure with you here this morning, there is a divided group among us. Some of you are, you're there. It's what you live for. You're ready to drop a hat at any moment and rejoice in the Lord. That's your thing. That's, That's where you're at. The season of life you're living, the the maturity that you've you've gained in life, you are ready to be obedient to Paul. When you read that, you're like, praise God, let's rejoice in the Lord together. And by the way, church, this is a corporate command. He's speaking to the church to rejoice in the Lord. So you say, well, let's get on with rejoicing. Maybe Mike can get up here and sing another verse or two, right? Now, I would venture, and I may be going out on a limb, uh, which sometimes it's possible to do that, and other times it's just plain fact that some of you are, are looking at a verse like this or come to a verse like this and you just don't know how. You don't know what he's saying because you don't feel it. You, you, you don't understand how because of the context of the life you're living, you, the things that are going on, the weight that's on you, and, and yet you come to a passage like this and Paul's just completely disconnected with you. And it's helpful for us as we think about this in the context of which Paul is writing. As most of you know anything about the prison epistles, they are called prison epistles because Paul is writing them from where? It's pretty obvious. Sometimes it's nice when church history gets things simple, you know, help us out along the way. So Paul is writing from jail. He is chained to a Roman guard and while he is in prison for preaching the gospel and proclaiming the faith of Jesus Christ, he he's also living with the weight or the reality that people is trying to usurp his authority. In chapter number 1, he speaks about those who are preaching Christ for vanity and for shameless gain, and they're doing this, trying to take advantage because Paul is far removed from the scene, and his hands are tied, well, chained, tied, chained, same thing, you get it. And so it's in this context that Paul is writing uh, from a context of one who is under suffering, facing persecution for the faith. So he's not disconnected from you or me. He is is a fellow traveler in this world when it doesn't go right. But he's also speaking to a church who themselves, or they themselves, are familiar with suffering. They face suffering on the outside. In chapter number 1, verse number 29, he says... Um, let's go back to chapter 1 verse 27 let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent they may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith and the gospel well that's good right that's what he wants but he goes on and says and not frightened in anything by your opponents that's not so pleasant it's not very good This is a clear sign of their destruction, but for your salvation in that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, we like that, right? Amen? But also, we don't necessarily like the latter part, suffer for his sake. So he's speaking to a church that that is in the middle of suffering, facing persecution and difficulty. Not only are they facing difficulty and persecution from the outside, we notice that there's a schism, there's a fraction with the inside. And can I say this, those of you who have ever been a church that, that had this part of their makeup, division on the inside is just as devastating, if not worse, than, than fighting from outside the church. There's nothing like a schism within the body of Christ. To rob it of joy. You have to walk around eggshells, depending on who you're walking around, because you know this person don't like that person. They've always sit over here and they're sitting over there and they never there's a never togetherness. And so Paul addresses this issue. Maybe it wasn't that steep, but he addresses it in the beginning of this with these two ladies whose names probably have been mispronounced since they've been written. I'm not saying Lear did that, I'm that's why I'm not reading it. Lear did well, you heard it earlier. But he says, because not only what's going on the outside, there's, there's stuff going on the inside, that joy-robbing, rejoice-robbing, conflict on the inside, the disagreement uh, going on. So the church is familiar with all the things that you and I are familiar with. It's almost like a modern-day letter, right? I know what's going on. Nevertheless, I'm writing to you, and this is what I'm going to command you. Now, before we read verse 4 again, let me just ask you the question, how would you address a church that was facing things like this? What would you tell them? What would be your go-to? Well, probably it would not be rejoicing the Lord, the first thing that come out of your mouth, would it? I mean, if we're honest, we should be. And yet this is exactly what Paul tells them. All the stuff that's going on, all the stuff that they're facing, he commands them and tells them, this is fitting, and that is to rejoice in the Lord. So much so that let me repeat myself, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Why is it fitting? Well, it's fitting because he's telling them the object of our rejoicing isn't our circumstances. And sometimes you may be able to rejoice in your circumstances. We can do that. There's moments in life where we we should rejoice in that. Take Take a moment and clear off a spot and rejoice. But if we're left only rejoicing in our circumstances, we're going to look like Eeyore more than we look like anybody else. Because life is just up and down. He's saying that we're not rejoicing in our circumstances, always uh, calling them to rejoice and all of that stuff. His, his instruction to them, the reminder to them, is that it is in the Lord that you find a place to rejoice, that you are to rejoice not because your life looks like Psalms 1-3. I mean, some of you in vacation Bible school probably memorize that and you're thinking, what is Psalms 1-3 says? Well, it's when your life looks like everything you do prospers. But sometimes your life doesn't look like that from a human perspective. And nevertheless, he says, and he commands you and me this morning to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The Psalms teach us this fact uh, Psalms one says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let many coastlands be glad. Rejoice in the sovereign ones, what the, so- what the psalmist is telling us. The Lord is our King. Psalms 100, the whole psalm is a, a a song of thanksgiving and praise. Verse number 4 says, Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. Because we like meddling. How many of you come to church this morning with thanksgiving on your lips, anybody? That's what he says to do here. Enter in your gates with thanksgiving and courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Why? Well, the whole psalm is about him being our creator and his goodness and his faithfulness. Again, First Chronicles sixteen eight through eleven. Some of you might be like Jesus' disciple. Can anything good come from First Chronicles? Let me just read the passage for you. David, bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, sings, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and judgments he's uttered. O offspring of Israel, can I say this? O O children of God, O saints, we could just say that, couldn't we? His servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Well, he's reminding us that our rejoicing in the Lord because of who he is, his wondrous deeds. His works, His name. He's holy and righteous and just and good. And you and I, despite what's going on in our life, we can rejoice and take joy in the name of the Lord. Because it reminds us of who He is and what He's vowed and how He's promised Himself to us. I think the passage is, is remarkably encouraging as He says to us that we're to seek the Lord in His strength. You can rejoice that the Lord can be found you might recall in the Old Testament God telling the nation of Israel I didn't tell you to seek me in vain we don't serve a God that is aloof that is hiding himself from us and 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 that's whether we're in distress or joy or whatever season of life we're in we rejoice in the fact that he can be found he is he is sought after and found and in him is strength and And His presence is with us continually. One theologian has put it that God has taken on flesh in a human form so that He might be found by us. Jesus Christ. We can rejoice this morning. We're to rejoice this morning because He is is near us. He is found. Rejoice in the Lord. We know it's in the Lord that we rejoice. But notice how frequently we're to do this. It's just on Sunday mornings, isn't it? Some of you overachievers may do this on Wednesday night as well. Just saying. Maybe if you come to communion, that's three times a week, at least once a month. That's pretty good. But it isn't what he says, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say Rejoice. It's always fitting. In the middle of suffering, in the middle of joy, in the middle of of celebration, in the middle of mourning and grieving, always in the Lord we find place and we find a call to rejoice in Him. And that's the very thing that we need to be reminded of. Isn't it? Because when things are bad, when things are... Are hard and when things are difficult, oftentimes we, are, we need our minds brought back to the goodness and glories and majesty of Jesus Christ. We need to again be awed at who He is. And not just who He is in some distant big way, but who He is in a, in a near big way in Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is so precious. Not just in saving us, but but giving us the comfort and the uh, motivation and the joy that we need day in and day out of our lives. Paul's telling to a church that's suffering, telling to us in this life, rejoice in the Lord. Always rejoice in Him. Be reminded of who He is and let your minds meditate and dwell on that. You can jump down to verse number 8 and fill that in right there if you wanted to. Lest our difficulties and our sorrows let the knowledge of God slip from our minds. Not only does it remind us of, of who God is in those moments, it also reminds us the testimony that he never changes. I mean, have you looked at a picture 10 years ago of yourself lately? 20 years ago of yourself? Some of you have posted anniversary pictures of you on uh, Facebook when you first got married. You're like, is that really them?" <clears throat> I didn't say that, but... I'm sure it was probably (laughs) said, but God never changes. Is that a comforting truth to you this morning? He's always the same. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We spoke of George Mueller, and it was said of him, with all the daunting weight of his ministry that he faced, that he said his first priority of the day was to make his heart happy in God every morning. To rejoice, practice rejoicing in the Lord daily. Do you do this? Do you rejoice in the Lord? Not closely, or closely related to our rejoicing and our disposition towards God, we find in verse number five our disposition towards others in the persona, our persona, or our characteristics. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. So what is he saying to us? Praise God, yes. We're to praise Him. Rejoice in Him. Glory. Be glad in who He is and what He has offered to us. In many places you could go. Ephesians 1 and in all the other places you could go of what we have in Christ. I was thinking as we were sitting and singing one of the songs this morning of John. 1 John where he says, Behold now, not when we get to heaven, now we are the sons of God. That's something to rejoice in. Praise God for it. The offer of the gospel. He says, not only glory in that, let your persona, let, the, let your relationship with Christ affect your relationship with everybody else. So he's saying in verse number 5. Don't just be nice to those who are in church with you, that you've got to be nice and shake hands and smile and all that other stuff. You're supposed to do that, right? Are you, are you supposed to do that? And some of you are like wondering, I don't know. He's going with that. But he said with everyone. Now the, the word here, reasonableness, is, is like nailing apple butter to a wall, applesauce to a wall. It just, it's just hard to get a fix on what it is. And every one of your translations, all the translations that you have this morning, probably have a different word in there. Reasonableness, gentleness, or a gentle spirit. Moderation, graciousness, considerate. Because not one word really captures the idea of what Paul is saying. William Barclay in his commentary on this defines this as something akin to merciful. Now he doesn't use the word merciful. I'm just trying to understand what Barclay is saying. So I say merciful. So before you think I'm quoting him and I get him wrong. But he says to the Greeks it was understood of that which goes beyond or that which goes after justice. So you got Justice. What the law requires, the rigid rule of the law. And he says, that which goes beyond it, right? And for the Christian, it would be something akin to the fact of we know what is required, what is owed us. But instead of requiring that, we are going to be merciful or or gracious or do what the Lord says. When I tell you, go one mile, go two. That the disposition of of your life towards others isn't always you being right or always you winning the argument or always you seeming to be dominant in that situation but is more of a a genuine care and a consideration for their well-being. That's why I think gentleness and graciousness is probably the best way to understand what he's saying here. Let your gentleness, your graciousness, you who have received the grace of God and the mercy of God, let it be displayed and be given to others. Maybe you know the story of Jesus gave of the parable of the servant who was forgiven of all of his debts that he could not pay. And he straightway goes and another servant owes him probably a little bit of money and, and yet he couldn't pay that and... And so he puts him in jail until he gets all his money's worth. He's saying do the opposite of that. As you've received mercy, as you've received the goodness of God, extend it to others. Extend it to others. Years ago, a um, a pastor in Tennessee, um, seeking to ministered to some of the congregation in his own church and to expand that out, he had a lot of people in his congregation that worked in food industry on Sundays, and so he came up with a slogan and a website which said, Sundays are the worst. It's not quite the thing you would think a church would do, but nevertheless he, he did it only to say, only to, to hear the stories of people who are waiting tables and waiting in restaurants, all the Christians who come out of church, and they said, Every one of them told you Sundays are the worst. They would go to leave a tip. Instead of a tip, they'd leave a track. This is better than money. How to get to heaven. The rudeness and impoliteness, they're demanding or they're demeaning or even, even acting like the, the waitress or the waiter didn't even exist wasn't on the same level of them. And and so the whole campaign was to say, we hear you and that's not right. (laughs) And I would agree with that. That's not right. I mean, you you see the idea. Now, if you're going out to eat after this and you don't tip it, maybe this will help you feel guilty about that. (laughs) If you're not good to your waitress or waiter, maybe maybe God can work this in your life and and show you that's wrong. It's wrong to treat anybody like that, let alone people who are there to serve you. (laughs) And if they're not doing a great job at it, not to be in the back where away from people. That happens too. But you can imagine the contrast of people sitting in church and listening to the Word of God and all the goodness of God and the joy of the gospel and then go straight out and, and treat the world, treat people in the world like that. Well, I'm not saying anyone in here does that. But it does give us a good example, or at least a contrast of what Paul is calling for in the Christian life. That our graciousness, our reasonableness, our, our gentleness may be known among others around us. And some of us need to be reminded that not only to the world and people who wait on us, and in stores and grocery stores and people that drive. Well, that's a hard one, especially on Route 8. But nevertheless, but sometimes we need to be reminded that that's the it ought to be in our own homes gentleness and graciousness shown to all people. And I know as men, we can fall guilty of being kind to a stranger and giving the shirt off your back but being mean and hard-hearted to your own family. That is not Christ-like. That is not honoring to God. That is not displaying the Gospel. That is not living out your faith. And so there is this showing us demonstration of gentleness. Now, why is it? Why can we act like that? Some of us may say, well, that would display weakness. People would walk all over me. Some of you are probably thinking that, how we can square that up. But he gives us a key here, I think, maybe even to the whole passage in verse number 5. We show our gentleness, our graciousness, let it be known to everyone. And the thing that is obvious, the thing that is shown is the Lord is at hand. There's two interpretations of that. One, it could refer to the second coming of Christ. It's Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believe in verse number 20 of chapter 3, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His coming is at hand. We believe that. But it also could mean not only that, but it could mean, and and some take it that way, MacArthur takes it this way, that that it means that He is at hand, present with us in every one of our circumstances. That we can have comfort in, in not only the way we rejoice in God in the middle of Trouble, But we can have comfort in the way we interact with others, even if there's suffering involved with that, even if there's injustice involved with that, because God is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Christ is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Either way, it's encouraging to be reminded that the Lord is at hand, which is a fitting introduction to the next point he brings out in verse number six. So our praise, our persona, and our prayer. Notice verse number 7 with me. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about most things. Sorry, it doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? Does NIV even say that, anything? It does. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. If you like to see the, the movement from verse six to seven? It's the idea of that raging thunderstorm and, and all the devastation that takes place. But isn't there something peaceful and calm when it's over? When there's a calmness and the stillness? You see the raging water of Niagara Falls and then you, you go to somewhere like a lake and it's like, just a dramatic difference. And, and so he's showing here that we're not to be caught up, not to be overwhelmed with the things of this life or in this life, not to be anxious in the sense of, of, of overly obsessed in a sinful manner. To where God's sovereignty and, and His work and, and our faith is, is totally put over to the side. And all we know is that, that worry, that obsession that's in front of us. We, we begin to distrust God and walk in unbelief. Because after all we've got all this trouble. He says we're not to be anxious in that way. We have seen in the rise of COVID or with the first year of COVID a rise in anxiety, at least those who are reported, I would say it's higher because men don't report stuff, is what one survey said, at least 25% across America. We have constant worry about trouble and constant worry about health, worldwide events, What's news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it keeps saying the same thing, breaking news or immediate or emergency or something, which automatically puts you into a cardiac arrest, or at least you're working on it, you know. That's the way they get you. It's that gateway drug. Not to mention the baggage which we carry in life itself. The worry of our family and the worry of our friends and and our children that's moved off or those who are near and and all the things that that overwhelm us constantly. And it's almost like, Paul, are you crazy telling us not to worry? And yeah, that's exactly what he tells us. He's not saying go go get high and just forget life and, and, and forget about anything or never have any concerns about life and go live through life days. What is he saying? We're not to live in a way in which we live this life void of the reality of God and His presence in our life. Rather, we're to act upon it. Upon the reminder that He is our Heavenly Father as Jesus taught us. And He knows what we have need of. And so we go to Him in prayer. That's the remedy that He gives us to worry. And the remedy is prayer. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything my prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to god you might recall peter's words when he says cast all your anxieties on him because what now what an invitation to prayer don't just go to a god who's busy i mean he's powerful he is busy you got your, you got your appointment, like going to the doctor. You know, you may get in there on time or not, and he'll hear your problems and give you a prescription and go on. And he says we're to do this to one who's not only omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, but to one who cares for you. That's a big difference, isn't it? You might recall the old hymn that says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's what he's telling the church here. Understanding where they are, understanding what they're facing, he says, don't be swallowed up with anxiety and worry. Rather, take those things to the Lord in prayer. And notice the heart that he has. Here, or, or at least what he, he brings us to and I think it's very important to mention he says you make prayer and supplication the word is just general prayer supplication is more a, a focused prayer your request what's going on that you, you're burdened with but he says do it with what? Thanksgiving that is not always common There's a time or maybe those, maybe a time in your own life that you fit into that category that you display your distrust, your distrust of God by the attitude and the accusations that you give towards him. You don't like the providence of God in your life. You don't like what's going on. And, and so you automatically turn towards God. Thanksgiving is turned into accusations and your heart becomes hardened against the things that are going on. It may still be some kind of surface devotion, but, but prayer life is more like a, a shouting match than it is humbly coming with Thanksgiving and, and trust in a God who cares for you. You're not praying by faith, you're praying by sight, you're praying by emotions or whatever else you're coming to, but you you misunderstand, you you misrepresent God, and you miss who He is and the privilege and the joy of what it means that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Maybe you've seen those like that. Someone close to me and gone through some terrible stuff in life. He struggles with that, and he would tell you straight up if he was here, he would tell you uh, what he's gone through. Sometimes when he's prayed and even talked to me, Mary was worried one day and thought he was fighting me. (laughs) He wasn't. He was talking about his relationship and prayer life. It's a struggle. And yet here he says as Christians we come to God, giving our petitions to God, but but setting our mind right as we come to Him, uh, not just of the problems that we face, but of the one we are facing, the one we are coming to. To thank God is to stand in appreciation for the gift of prayer, stand in appreciation of who He is to us, to stand believing that He is for us and not against us. Coming to prayer with thanksgiving is is a reminder that what you're doing is not a needless effort or some formula or just ritual that you're going through that's meaningless. But this is one of the ways God works mightily through our lives. In fact, the peace which He offers to us, the promise in verse number 7, is resting on us coming and casting all our cares on Him through prayer and thanksgiving. The person who finds this privilege Prayer and bringing his care before the Lord. That's what he means here by making every petition known to him. Realizes it is one who cares for him. They know their Lord loves them and has committed himself to them. Therefore, they come in prayer. And that doesn't mean they sing all the time or they skip. And they may pray through tears and think through tears, but nevertheless, it is that faith of that that settledness that firmness of I know who I have believed, and am persuaded that He will keep what I've committed into Him until that day. Is that confidence of even though all the circumstances and all the feelings which overwhelm me, uh, they they tempt me and they they try to deceive me in the character and nature of God. I have a sure Word that tells me who He is, and that He does not change. The Gospel tells me the very same thing, isn't it? Romans 8, that if He gave His Son for me, how will He not also with Him give me all things? You see, beloved, as we, as we bear the weight of life and in all the circumstances that we're facing, He's saying continually make it a habit, casting these before the Lord, continually being reminded that He cares for you. And it's not futile. It's not an empty exercise. But in this In this, God gives to us that great joy of peace. Verse number 7. That's the promise, isn't it? And the peace of God. His peace. Unconquerable. Unashamed. Unexplainable peace. That's what he says here. Which passes surpasses all understanding. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is coming to a place of peace in God through faith trusting him in his sovereignty trusting him in his goodness someone one old preacher has, has said this and I thought it was a neat little uh, neat little phrase and he says when you can't see his hand you can trust his heart that's the peace of God isn't it in the middle when we cannot see with our own eyes. that we can trust His heart. We can rejoice in Him this morning, church. We can rejoice for all that He offers to us in Christ Jesus. We can show graciousness just as we have been shown it. And you can keep casting your care on Him. And the good thing <coughs> is, have you ever called someone and you just like, didn't want to pick up the phone? Anybody? Or, you know, the saying, you ask somebody, how are you doing? But there's some people you probably don't ask that to. Because they'll tell you how they're doing. You're not really sure if you're ready for that, you know. That's awful to say that out loud. But God is never that way. Never, never that way towards his children. Peace of God that comes that guards the mind in the middle of our chaos is provided for us by the peace with God that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The Bible says in Romans chapter number 5, Therefore we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over, is what he's saying. The animosity, the conflict between God and God, and us is resolved in Jesus Christ. That's why He came. We're at enmity with God in the flesh. We've sinned against Him. His law, His judgment weighs upon us. The condemnation of our own guilt before Him. And yet through His Son coming and dying for your sin, dying for sin, has provided peace for us. The Bible says if you would come to Him, He would nowise reject you. And if you don't know the peace of God, maybe it's because you don't have peace with God. And I would invite you to come to him this morning. And sometimes, believers, you know, the lack of peace of God is because we are not practicing and continually casting our cares on him with well, thanksgiving. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. So thankful that we can rest in the provision you made for us, who you are. <clears throat> And because of who you are, we can live this life with joy. In the middle of sorrow, because of who you are, we can show graciousness in the middle of in the middle of hostility and because of who you are, we can take burdens which we carry continually, Lord, and cast them on you. I know each of us have our own, those things we worry about, those things that overwhelm us. And God, I pray that it would continue to be the practice. That we would continually come to you, resting in you, and what you've done for us, and what you will do for us. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning, any here this morning that don't know you, that don't know the peace that you have given to us through Christ. I pray even this morning that they would raise the white flag of surrender. And that they would come and humble themselves before you, and asking you to forgive them, and to give them that peace that you offer in Jesus' name. Amen.